leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Pharmaceuticals is developing next-generation immuno-oncology drugs that are small molecule compounds designed to act like biologics. Clio's compounds activate patients' immune systems to target and destroy cancer cells, but are faster and less costly to design and produce than biologics. We spoke to Doug Mannion, CEO of Clio, about the company's platform technology, why he thinks it'll produce safer and more effective immunotherapies, and the potential to use these compounds in conjunction with existing biologics to enhance their activity. Doug, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure. It's a real honor. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about Clio Pharmaceuticals, its immunocology platform, and how you're able to get small molecule drugs to act like biologics. Let's start with the need, though. What is the problem Clio's trying to address? Uh, well, not just Clio. I think uh, there's a bit of a global Manhattan project going on right now uh, with everyone um, excited about the possibilities of harnessing the host's own immune system against tumor cells. And this is called immuno-oncology. And, and it's been in the offing for a very long time. Many, many people have tried for a very long period of time without really getting uh, making much headway. But in the last decade or so, we uh, several have kind of cracked the nut at a variety of different ways to, uh, to turn on the immune system or even to turn off mechanisms by which the tumor cells actually turn off the immune system uh, to be able to get you know host immune cells. Uh, to actually eat the uh, the cancer cells, and, and you may not know this, your listeners may not either, but um, we're constantly fighting back, you know, infections and and cancers. So, with an intact immune system, you you can um, uh, keep at bay most of it, but sometimes things break through, and there's a whole bunch of different ways that uh, that tumors uh, have you know stealth mechanisms for them to kind of avoid immune monitoring and and uh, killing by immune cells. So. There's a lot of work going on. Um, where we're unique is that we believe that we can actually harness the immune system by using small molecules or synthetic molecules as opposed to what is called biologicals. And the difference is biologicals are made by, by fermentation. So you basically do bioengineering where you um, create or modify um, a genetic material, put insulin cells and have the cells produce these large proteins. Antibodies are an example of of a bioengineered biological, but we're we're using kind of old school chemistry, at least 
almost that we're using cutting, you know, state of the art chemistry, but <laughs> the old kind of synthetic approach, uh, through, um, innovative chemical approaches like computational design, where you can kind of exploit what is learned about the interface between proteins to then create small molecules that can do the same thing that, uh, that big proteins, uh, uh, used to only be able to do. Well, take a step back. How, how did Clio come about? So Clio is a brainchild of a professor at Yale by the name of David Spiegel, uh, David, brilliant biochemist, who fairly early in his in his training uh, began to to learn a lot about the host immune system, uh, and he became intrigued at the possibility of using of kind of merging his interest in in uh, immunobiology and his interest in biochemistry. So began to look at various ways that you could use chemicals to um, elicit immune responses. And the, the first way that he opted to do this was through a very clever approach called uh, antibody recruiting molecules. And these are kind of a two-headed, think of this as almost like a, a barbell. One end uh, binds to a, an antigen or a protein on the surface of a cancer cell. And then the other end binds to something that would turn on the immune system. And, and in between, you have a, a linker. And that linker can be modified um, in a variety of different ways to, to dial in a bunch of attributes, to dial out a bunch of attributes. What he thought of for the effective mechanism is why not create such a dumbbell that one end actually attaches to an antibody that would be destined to attack another antigen. So not the protein in question on the tumor cell, but and you could basically do this for almost any specific antibody. You can redirect a, an antibody meant to recognize antigen or protein A against antigen or protein B. So you can basically redirect something to attack whatever um, surface antigen of a, of a cancer cell that you want. And he actually worked on a couple of different uh, surface proteins, one of them for prostate cancer and one of them for pancreatic cancer, was indeed able to show that you can redirect antibodies and elicit a very robust immune response against them. And he's published information or data showing that he was able to accomplish this with a variety of different effector mechanism constructs through the intermediaries of endogenous antibodies or antibodies that already are in the host with the disease. So um, he had robust proof of principle through that work uh, done at, at his lab at Yale when he and his um, and co-founder Roy Priab, who's now our CFO and COO, founded Clio. And the uh, whole idea with Clio was to kind of industrialize the work that had been coming out of his academic lab so they founded the company in 2015. Um, they actually completed a Series A financing round in uh, September of 2016. And then in January 2017, uh, Clio's labs opened um, on some uh, uh, space that we actually are renting uh, close to the uh, to the Yale campus in, in New Haven. And so basically Yale Laboratories uh, began to exist in, in uh, January 2017. I joined in May of 2017. Uh, from a long um, stint in, in larger pharma, 20 years of pharma experience with a bunch of big pharma companies. Um, but I was brought on to specifically kind of help translate you know, David's um, early work in, in his academic lab into a much more industrialized process. You were actually heading specialty development at BMS. H how did you end up at Clio? What, what attracted you to the company? So the uh, it, I was approached actually by the chairman of the board of of Clio, a guy called Deck Dugan, who also is the chairman of the board of our biggest investor, Biohaven. And so he approached me in uh, January 2017 and told me all about, you know, this company that had just kind of got off the ground, had just been funded, 
uh, and uh, he believed that I would make a good partner, a good partner for David. So uh, lunch was set up with me and David Spiegel, and uh, I immediately got intrigued by uh, the genius behind the basic premise of this company, which is that smaller and simpler is better. I'm an engineer by training. I was an engineer before I was a doctor, and engineering is all about finding you know simple solutions to complicated problems. And you know the beauty of one of the many beauties of, of how David approaches things is you can find much simpler chemical structures, much simpler manufacturing processes to deliver those chemical structures than you could ever do with a biological. So just the whole idea of doing things in a simpler way was just inherently attractive to me, given that background. And uh, in fact, if you you know once I kind of really got to know how things were we're working and what could be accomplished, the chemical diversity that one can achieve with synthetic chemical discovery or with synthetic peptide discovery is, is its orders of magnitude more than the, uh, than what it naturally occurs in, 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 in nature, which is what biologicals take care of. So it, it's way, way easier for you to modify chemicals than it is for you to modify biologicals, which requires, as I mentioned, genetic engineering and then you know, very complicated protein expression and purification, all of that complexity we can we can avoid. Well, the company says the synthetic compounds it creates has significant advantages compared to biologics. Is that simply a matter of cost and administration, or are there functional advantages as well? Uh, many. So you already mentioned one, so I'll, I'll just uh, to. Uh, elaborate a little bit on that. I already mentioned the fact that uh, the the manipulation alteration of chemicals is way easier than the alteration of biologicals, and that's also true then for manufacturing. So you don't need to go through uh, biological fermentation with small molecules. It, it is basically all done through chemical processing, uh, which is easier and in general much less expensive than biological manufacturing. But then there's also just um, inherent attributes to using small molecules. Um, one of them is just they are smaller, and so that does allow for uh, other forms of delivery than the intravenous or sub-Q delivery that, that is necessary for much larger proteins. So we aspire to be able to make uh, drugs, in fact, that can turn on the immune system specifically against, against uh, tumors and other antigens with oral delivery, which, of course, would be a boom. We haven't quite got there yet, but the fact that we're a small molecule um, platform approach uh, opens the door for such delivery, but even if it had to be other than oral, low-dose, infrequent subcutaneous dosing that could be self-administered is, is easily within our grasp. So there's that. Uh, there's the fact from a safety perspective, our drugs are, are extracellular, uh, they're small molecules, and so they're by definition non-immunogenic. Uh, those are major attributes. And the, the basic size of the molecule uh, should lead to better tissue penetration for solid tumors. We have yet to prove that, but it's a, it's almost a biological truism that a small molecule will penetrate into a tumor much more readily than a large than a large protein. So we're in, in the process now of actually performing experiments that uh, that prove that in uh, in animal models. So so on multiple different levels there are potential advantages and again I want to come back to this issue of chemical diversity with chemical diversity we actually can bind to tumor antigens in ways that are different and some in some ways complementary to how biologicals can do it. So for instance, one mechanism by which tumor cells become immune to biologicals is they 
alterate they all they they, uh, they have alterations in the actual structure of the surface antigen so basically the biological doesn't recognize them anymore well we can actually create binders that bind to a different part of the same antigen that would not mutate to to avoid the biological so in fact you could have our drug be active where others are not and that's just one example of where we had this tunability and the tunability could be on affinity to the target it can be tunability through the linker that could confer, for instance, longer half-life or um, uh, better tissue penetration, for instance, in bone for bone-specific cancers or, or bony metastases and the like. So chemical diversity opens up a whole bunch of doors that are way more difficult to walk through with a biological bioengineering approach. Your platform has three components. You talked about the antibody recruiting molecules or ARMS. There's also the synthetic antibody mimics or SIAMs. Uh, what are those and, and how do they work? Yeah, so the, in, in David's, the evolution of David's thinking, he first thought about recruiting the intermediary of a native antibody, an endogenous antibody already existing in the host. But he soon realized that, in fact, um, you could avoid the intermediary entirely and then actually create a bispecific small molecule um, that just directly interacts with tumor cells. And there are receptors on pertinent uh, human immune cells, like natural killer cells or macrophages or killer T cells, that one can exploit to um, bind to and be activated by a small molecule binder. And so soon after I arrived, I uh, ramped up the exploration of us finding such binders, and in fact, uh, we've been quite successful. So those technologies are a few months or quarters behind where we're at with the uh, with the ARM technology, but we've shown pretty considerable success in terms of directly activating the immune cells as opposed to having to use the antibody as an intermediary. And other companies are doing this with a biological approach. And in the case of activating killer T cells through a, a receptor called CD3, um, there's a whole bunch of companies that are in, in, uh, investing in things called bites, which are biologic T cell activators or enhancers. So um, our bispecific CD3 activator is basically a small molecule version of what others call bites in the biological space. And there's quite a bit of interest. In fact, the first such bite uh, was approved in the U.S. not that long ago. It's a drug um, against a target called CD19, which is a marker on, a, on certain hematologic tumors. And it shows quite good activity, but it's clear that there's room for improvement in terms of bite technology. The, the, bite, the first one approved at a very short half-life, and then there's immune-mediated toxicities due to nonspecific activation of killer T cells, um, which are opportunities for innovators like us to, uh, to do better. You also are producing what you call monoclonal antibody therapy enhancers or mates. What are those? Yeah, so that's the, the last of the three platforms that, uh, that we had thought up, and, and it's probably the most expedient. And our thinking there was there's a huge amount of investment going on by the makers of, um, of first-generation monoclonal therapeutics, and there's a whole bunch of monoclonal antibody therapeutics in oncology and outside of oncology that you may have heard of. You know, an example would be um, rituxan. So rituxan is an anti-CD20 antibody that was a, that is commercialized by Roche. Uh, has good activity against a bunch of CD20-bearing uh, hematologic uh, cancers. So um, it is nearing, I think it actually has reached the end of its patent life in the U.S. and in Europe, and um, Roche had searched for a next-generation rituxan that actually could um, 
would be better than rituxan in, in some, if not all, of the CD20 based indications for which rituxan was approved. So the way they approached that was through uh, bioengineering modifications to the uh, to to the uh, rituxan antibody, and so they created this new molecule, new antibody that they called Gaziva, and they then tested it against rituxan. And unfortunately, they found that it was only better than rituxan in one indication and no better in several other indications. And I think the world is trying to kind of figure out why that is. But it's not a simple thing for you to uh, genetically modify uh, a monoclonal antibody to make it uniformly better whilst maintaining all of the attributes of the parent antibody. So our thinking is, if you just took the parent antibody proper and attached to it a small molecule additional activity, that that would get you to the same place in a much simpler way and could guarantee maintenance of all of the native antibodies functions whilst adding on a new function. So that's the logic, and we think that this is going to be a nice vehicle for us to have collaborations with companies that already have um, antibodies on the market because many of them, just as like Roche had done, will be looking for ways to improve upon their monoclonals so they can kind of perpetuate their franchise in any given um, area. CD20 is an example for Roche, but there are many other rapidly expanding um, um, targets. Uh, for instance, CD38 for myeloma and other hematologic toxins is, is another example. So the mating technology is a vehicle for us to kind of hybridize biologics with small molecule thinking, in a very innovative small molecule thinking. Your pipeline's in preclinical development. The most advanced candidates are for multiple myeloma and other hematological malignancies. Why did you start there? Well, in fact, we didn't. So David had initially uh, thought of, uh, of doing most of our platform validation work on um, the foundation of a solid tumor target. And the one, the, the one that we kind of landed on was called PSMA, which is a, an antigen that's overexpressed in prostate cancer. Um, the challenge with it, and a challenge with many tumor antigens, is that um, if you don't actually have success with a drug against it, then they're technically not validated. They're clinically validated targets. And so it's a little bit more difficult to, to um, work for something that, with something that is not already clinically validated because just the systems don't exist. So whilst we continued to work on the basis of a PSMA-targeted approach, we, in parallel, began to work on a more validated target, CD38. Um, there's a monoclonal that's uh, approved in the U.S. or other companies that are about to have monoclonals approved against CD38. The one that is approved is called Darzalex or Daratuzumab, which is a, a, a product from uh, Janssen. So the fact that you have a drug that could be used as an active control, um, it has been approved by the FDA, so there's already information out there about preclinical uh, models that were um, that were useful in terms of delineating preclinically the drug's activity and safety that you could leverage. Uh, all of that kind of helps de-risk the platform validation work. So, in fact, uh, through the CD38-based uh, platform validation, we actually were able to kind of skip ahead of even what we were doing with PSMA. That being said, in parallel, we did get some success with PSMA, so we now actually have um, antibody recruiting molecules targeted against both CD38 and against PSMA uh, that are actually um, going through kind of final stages of uh, of uh, improvement before we begin IND enabling activities, which should start in the coming few months. And the goal would be to be in the clinic with one or both of those molecules in the first half of, no later than the end of the first half of 2020. This is a, a therapeutic area that's being built around combination therapies. 
How does that shape both your pipeline and partnering strategies? It's a it's a great question, and you know, having been at uh, at Bristol Myers Squibb um, until you know, moving over to this company, I had kind of a front row seat to the early thinking regarding combination therapy using immunotherapeutics. And this is a rapidly evolving and very complicated story. But what already people are learning is that it's not as simple as they thought. So some companies thought that the best way to go to combine drugs was um, to combine immunoactivating drugs or, or immuno-oncology drugs, which is, was BMS's approach. Other companies have chosen to take a, a, an approach where they combine uh, kind of more traditional chemotherapy agents, so cytotoxin, like what most people used to use before the age of immunotherapy kind of came in vogue. So it's combined cytotoxic drugs with immunotherapeutic drugs, and that's an approach that's been used by several companies, including Merck. And there's been kind of varying success by the different approaches. So um, we are building our molecules in a way that they would be able to be used in combination with either other immunotherapeutics or non-immunotherapeutics. And again, because of um, our tunability, as I mentioned already in the case of, of CD38, or, you know, it, it, we can design ours in a way that they are kind of complementary to either the binding site or the, the mechanism for other drugs against that target, which makes them um, almost by definition complementary and amenable to combination therapy, either in early lines or possibly in later lines when our tunability allows us to have activity against tumors that would otherwise be resistant to, to earlier line drugs. You've raised $34 million to date. How far will that take you? We have sufficient funding to take us through human proof of concept, so phase 2A for at least a program. Uh, but as I mentioned, because of the fact that we have platform validation for one and soon more platforms, it opens the door for us to have uh, partnering deals with uh, pharmaceutical companies that would bring in additional non-dilutive financing. And my goal would be to try to match the um, existing dilutive financing with an equal amount of non-dilutive financing. So that could take us, you know, a much later yet into the development cycle of one or more drugs. Doug Mannion, CEO of Clio Pharmaceuticals. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. It, it is our pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to our story. It's our pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.